We're going to get into the Bible right now, so if you guys take your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, I'm happy to announce that I'm, I'm, I'm officially back, so I'll, I'll tell you. Um, thanks. That could be good news or bad news, depending upon how you view it. Um, you're stuck with me. So um, most of you guys know I, I had vocal cord surgery. I was out for a long time since uh, the end of January, and so I went in for a checkup. So last Sunday was my first Sunday that I preached in you know, a little over three months, um, but it was a long weekend because I taught twice on Friday, I taught twice on Sunday, so it was the first time I'd spoken at that length and uh, magnitude in, in a very long time. So I was a little bit nervous. I knew I had a doctor's appointment on Friday. I was kind of waiting to find out, like, you know, what was going on, and, you know, I knew uh, based upon a doctor's appointment from about, I don't know, four or five weeks ago, maybe even longer than that, um, in the area of the surgery site, there was, uh, quote-unquote, a tiny bump on the area of the surgery site. Um, doctor wasn't really sure exactly what that was all about or why that was there, um, but he was like, I, I just want to keep an eye on that, just monitor it. I mean, we already know, good news is, upside is that it's not cancer, so that's really good. I'm really happy to know that. Um, so he wanted to monitor it, so I went in for a doctor's appointment this past Friday. He checked it out. He was like, oh, you know, tiny bump, still there. It hasn't grown any, um, so that's good news, and he's like, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see that, and he's like, uh, I don't you should be good to go. Um, I'll see you in three months. I'm like, so, so we're good. He's like, yeah, you look good. I'm like, yes. So I walked out of the doctor's appointment with my wife. I'm like, all right, that's good news. Like, I feel really stoked about that. So I'm, I'm, I'm back. So at least for three months now. So yes. So yeah, praise God. Thank you. So we're going to continue in the book of Ephesians, and uh, I'm going to read a passage, actually, that Pastor James had taught on uh, several weeks ago, probably about three weeks ago. And uh, I'm going to re-teach uh, on that passage, not because James did an insufficient job, he did an excellent job, but uh, as you'll see in just a moment here, this is such a very dense, rich, large passage that there's a lot of angles, a lot of facets to it, and uh, as I've read through this over the past several weeks and reread it and over and over again, probably dozens of times, um, it's, it's just one of those things I keep going through over and over again. And I mean, honestly, even as late as last night, even earlier this morning, I'm just kind of like, I still don't even quite get this passage. It's like, it is so dense and so rich. And I just, I want to, I want to take some time to really carefully, prayerfully read through it and um, try to consider it. So we're going to read through the little section here, um, chapter 3. Verse 14, I'll read down to verse 19. I'll pray, and then we'll begin to jump in and take a look at some of the elements that Paul's talking about here. So verse 14, he starts off. Now, now notice this is actually a prayer. So Paul is actually writing like a prayer. Uh, he says, I'm praying for you guys. Here's what I'm praying. So he also tells us the posture of prayer because he says, um, I'm on my knees right now. Like Paul's writing this saying, I'm on my knees right now as I'm writing this to you guys praying for you. So we know the posture, and we know the heart that Paul's praying this. So he says this in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, and according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the spirit of your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that passes or surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's Paul's prayer. Let's pray. God, we ask you right now that you would 
uh, open our hearts and our minds to understand and to not just intellectualize what Paul's laying out here, but God, that this would be uh, brought into our own experience, that we would experience and know something of the love of Christ and experientially know something of the power of God that's at work within us, that it would change us and transform us. So God, we ask that you would help us to take a moment to pause, to gaze, not just glance, but to gaze at Jesus, to see who you are, to see what you've done. And God, let that begin to soften and change and transform our hearts. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I want to show you a picture. Um, as I was reading through this, I had um, several images that kind of had gone through my mind. One of them was uh, an experience from several years ago that I had gone there with uh, Pastor James and a couple other people from our church. In fact, this trip was kind of a unique trip. I'll kind of a side note. Um, one of the guys that we had gone with, actually, this was sort of a scouting trip down in, in Brazil. This is actually Iguazu Falls, if you're familiar with it. It's actually, I think it's considered the largest waterfall in the entire, entire planet. Um, we had an opportunity to go there. And it kind of borders like, you know, Brazil and... Um, Paraguay and I think Argentina or something like that. Um, so anyways, we had an opportunity to be able to go there. And I don't know if you see that in the lower left-hand corner. Is that right? No, lower right-hand corner. There you go. My left. You're right. There you go. Lower right-hand corner, there's that like little uh, walkout area. So people would like walk out there. So it gives you a little bit of a, a scale uh, as to what it would, must be like. You know? So there you are. And uh, when we had gone out in there, and I think this was actually one of the very lookout areas that you can go out. There's a lot of them around there. Uh, you're standing there, and it's, it's, you're literally soaking wet because there's so much moisture and water uh, going on. In fact, they actually give you, like, these plastic um, um, rubber things that you can wear so that you don't get soaked, and it was hard taking shots and pictures. I didn't take these pictures, by the way, but um, it was just absolutely amazing. Um, but again, this does not in any way, shape, or form give you the magnitude of Iguazu Falls. This is just a little snapshot, a little glimpse. Um, show you the next slide. Um, this, this is, so this is just a section of Iguazu Falls. This isn't the whole thing. There's like these little capillaries all over the place. And there's so many areas of Iguazu Falls that it's one of the most beautiful areas in the world. So I'm not positive, but I think in the very center, that little walkout spot right down there, that may actually be that little area that you saw in the picture just prior to this. So if it gives you just any bit of scale as to how large this thing is, in some ways, this is kind of what I felt in reading this passage. Like, you know, we can focus on little areas like the love of God and the power of God and all this. But in reality, it's, we're just looking at one little outlook section at the falls getting a little bit wet. But we're not really even fully aware of the magnitude, the size of what Paul is writing about and he's touching on and hitting on. Because it's such a big scene. So what I want to do is I, I want to try to do the, my, the best that I can to try to understand and unpack some of the things and at least really two themes that Paul is trying to suggest and really pray for the Christians to whom he's writing to. Now, before I jump into that, I want to take just another two steps back because uh, I think it's important to address and understand in the context, who is Paul even talking about? And we'll kind of look at this more in just a moment. But in short, Paul is writing to a group of people uh, who are called Ephesians. They live in an area called Ephesus or a city called Ephesus. These people would have been Gentiles. And what that meant is that they were non-Jewish. So if you know anything about Paul the Apostle, Paul was actually raised in a Jewish home. Paul was described himself as a Jew of Jews, uh, Pharisee of Pharisees, meaning that Paul sort of had the credentials raised up in a very strong, isolated, marginalized sect or tribe, if you would, of Judaism, which meant... In short, 
a guy like Paul would never really just go out and have lunch with a bunch of Gentiles. That type of sect that Paul had kind of been uh, groomed in or raised up in basically excluded and alienated themselves from anybody that was not part of their own little sect. So if you think about it this way, maybe the closest thing that you can liken it to, let's say that Paul was part of Westboro Baptist Church. That, that to say, that was where Paul grew up in. He was the guy that carried you know, signs picking people's funerals and so on and so forth, saying, you know, God hates you, so on and so forth. And, and those type of people would never sit down and have dinner with somebody that was not part of their little tribe. That was Paul. So what Paul is doing is he's writing, and he's writing to this group of uh, people that were formerly his enemy, formerly people that wouldn't have anything to do with. And he's saying, you guys are saints. You guys are my brothers and sisters in Christ. You guys I'm praying for. You guys, every time I think of you, I'm absolutely blown away by God's grace because you are part of my family. This, this is like shocking because in the Roman Empire, in fact, you can even say in every empire, in every society, throughout every age, even in today's world, society's chopped up by social economic groupings, by race, by all sorts of other means by which we designate and distinguish between who's in and who's out. Now, we live in San Luis Obispo, and San Luis is not really known for its, like, rich racial diversity. I mean, it's really not. I mean, like, if you go to a city, uh, you can go to San Francisco, and that's, that's, like, rich, uh, that's really rich racially. St. Louis, not so much. Kind of, but not, I mean, it really isn't. I mean, the fact of the matter is, uh, even still in a place that is not as rich racially as slow, still has its little factions. Still has its little groupings of people. It may not be race-based. It may be, you know, here's the group of people that are like young, you know, married and have kids under the age of five. They hang in their little groups and constantly try to dismiss or remove themselves from those who are college students. Or college students are like, I don't want to hang out with people that have families. Or people that are older, that have older kids, are like, I don't want to hang out with people that have got young kids because they're annoying and they kind of aren't fun to be around and have to deal with all their garbage and trash and so on and hear the stories about changing poopy diapers and we just don't want to do it. So there are still factions everywhere you look. And what Paul is saying, for one, is that has no place in the body of Christ at all. In fact, if, if we play into those factions, if we become part of those factions, all we're simply demonstrating is that we do not comprehend the depth, the brevity of the gospel impact our lives. We're still living according to the systems of the world, which chops things up according to sex and tribes and sections and all these other things and marginalizes those people that are not quite like us. And Paul is saying, I'm blown away because I can look at you Gentiles who were formerly my enemies, people who I would picket your funerals and call you my brothers and sisters. And I love you for what God is doing in you. And I'm I'm praying for you that you would continue to experience and know God's love and power in unique ways. So that brings us to really what we're going to be taking a look at here today, and we'll begin to kind of unpack this. There's two major themes that Paul addresses in this prayer. I don't know if you picked up on them or saw them. And they're not new themes in the book of Ephesians. The two themes are actually power and love. He prays for them that they would know the power of God, uh, that's through the Holy Spirit, and that they would know the love of Christ, that 
surpasses knowledge and the height and the depth and the width and the breadth and that famous verse that oftentimes we understand and realize. But in short, these two themes, love and power, are really the two themes that are kind of interwoven in almost every single movie, drama, novel, storyline, country song in the world. Like when you think of it, uh, they're the two themes that really everybody wants, and if they don't have them, we wish we had them. Some of us might be like, well, I want money. Well, if you look at it, really what you want maybe or may not necessarily be money, but money is a means to obtaining power. Or money is a means to obtaining people liking you or some sort of quasi form of love. It's really not love. So, so money really isn't the end. It's money becomes the means to something even greater. In short, I think love and power are the two things that really we want. If we're weak, we want power. We want to do what we can to obtain power. If we feel alienated, if we feel ostracized, if we feel marginalized, we just want to be loved. We just want somebody to accept us. We just want somebody to come to us and say, I'll accept you, I'll take you in as you are and devote myself and my energies to you unconditionally. We want that. We love that. That's why I think oftentimes we write about it and we go to movies that portray that because we want in that story, right? We want to be in that. And when we're not in that, we do everything we can to at least dream about being in that or think about being in that or fantasize about being in that. And Paul says, I'm praying for you that you will be brought and swept up into that. This is shocking. Because what Paul is saying is that those two themes, the double theme of power and love, are what God possesses. One scholar kind of put it this way, and I like the way he described it. He says, the love of power is actually brought about all form of destruction and brokenness and fracturedness within nations. And, this, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's brought about genocide. The love of power is then all sorts of heinous things throughout our world. But the power, consequently, the power of love has actually brought to divorce people back together again, to squabbling and embittered family members through reconciliation back together again, has brought father back to disenfranchised son, has restored all these things, the power of love. And what Paul is saying is, I'm praying for you that you would know something of both the love of God and the power of God that is at work in this universe doing something constructive rather than destructive. And Paul says the most profound way, most profound place in which we see love and power at work is most notably through Christ. That's what Paul is saying. That raised him from the dead and that is alive and at work within us. So we see these two themes that Paul is really praying for. So what I want to look at today are really three things, three questions. One is we'll ask, uh, what does Paul particularly pray? Secondly, who is Paul praying for? Thirdly, how do you receive that? So first of all, let's take a look at, again, what does Paul pray? And I've already kind of, you know, given you the punchline. Spoiler alert, I already told you it's both love and power. But let's take a look at that a little bit further. Because power, Paul says that you would be strengthened within your inner being. So again, verse 16, he makes that point, that your inner being. So something about who you are inside, the inner you, um, would be strengthened with this power of God. The second thing that he talks about is love. That love, uh, that, that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. 
It says this in verse 17. And he uses kind of this uh, double metaphor of uh, rooted and grounded. In fact, most uh, scholars uh, would basically point out what Paul is actually doing is he's giving sort of this double analogy. Uh, one has to do with agriculture. One has to actually do with uh, architecture, which I think is great because, you know, we live in a city of Cal Poly, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a university that like, puts out and makes and manufactures people that go out and they, you know, plant things and work in the agricultural industry, and those that actually build things and make sure that, you know, things are built on a nice, firm foundation. Paul's saying is that God is in the same business. God is into wanting and desiring to take lives that were broken, that were not rooted right, that were somehow uprooted and overturned and undone and broken and fruitless, to take those lives and replant them so that their root systems can go down deep and strong and tap into groundwater and then so that they can begin to flourish and so that the fruit that begins to be born from their lives can actually bring health and benefit to others around them. And then that also their lives, that may feel like they've been on a broken foundation, falling down, crumbling, crushing others around them, that they can be rebuilt up, restructured, so that their lives can actually become a force of strength in the lives of other people. So Paul is praying for that God's love and God's power do this in them. So, again, like I already mentioned, that what Paul is saying is that this is, this is the concept of uh, power and love is not new to Paul in the book of Ephesians. Here's a couple ways in which Paul actually has already introduced these two themes already in the letter as he's been writing this. So first of all, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, he reminds these Ephesian believers what God was already at work doing in their lives. In verse 19, he says this. Uh, you can read along with me if you'd like. It says this, What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? So he's saying, he's like, can you, can you believe the immeasurable? In fact, it's his power that is like, you cannot even measure it so great, so powerful, so mighty. And this immeasurable power is at work in you, what Paul is saying, toward you who believe, according to the working of his great might. Verse 20 says that he worked in Christ when Christ raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all other rule, authority, and power, and dominion. So in other words, what Paul is saying is that what you need to understand to the Ephesian believers, and then consequently to you and I, if you believe, if you believe this story, if this is something that you have taken to heart and you have trusted in, Paul's saying, here's what's really going on. There's this power, this immeasurable power. It's unrivaled. It's not like the power of what we see in the forces of nature, even though there is raw power in this world. You can't say of any other raw power in this world, whether it be you know, a, a typhoon or an earthquake or any other type of raw power in this world, that it's, it's good. Because it's just raw power, it's forces of nature. But with God, this power, this immeasurable power, this immeasurable power is at work and was at work in Christ, raising Christ from the dead. Paul's saying that this same power is at work in you, bringing you who are once dead in your trespasses and sins as rebels, alone, alienated, broken, under the consequences of things that you've suffered. Paul's saying that same power was at work in you, raising you up. Washing you, cleansing you, forgiving you, reconciling you, bringing you back to God. And now it continues to be at work through you on a horizontal level, reconciling you to former enemies. 
repairing, restoring, reconciling relationships that were once out of whack and broken and destroyed and crushed. God is at work in you doing this. And Paul says and attributes all of this to power, God's power. He goes on in verse 4 of chapter 2. And again, this is sort of one big long train of thought. I'm kind of truncating some of this so you can kind of get the uh, emphasis of these two themes. And Paul says, God being rich in mercy because of his great love. So he shifts the theme from power to love. And then he goes on to say, with which he loved us. Even when you were dead in trespasses and sin, Christ, he made us alive with Christ. By grace, you are saved. So as I read that, and I see this, what I think Paul is saying is that at work in the universe, because of God's great mighty power through Jesus, death, resurrection from the grave, that his power that raised him from the grave, that his love that was at work through him, that when power and love come together and work in your favor, on your behalf, Paul says that this is grace. That grace is, grace is God's power, God's love working for your good favor. It's amazing when you think about that. That's what I think Paul is describing here. God is at work. So in, other, in other words, God is not just raw power with no love. That's frightening. So just pause and think about this for a moment. It's one of the reasons why pagan religions, even to this day, are still prevalent in the world today. Because people look at the elements of nature and they're like, oh my gosh, there must be a deity behind this. And that deity must be very, very angry at all of us, and rightly so. We're not good people. Like, it doesn't matter what type of primitive, you know, community or society you find, that every single person you can find is going to have some sort of notion of that. But what you have is a deity that's all power but no love. So what we have that Paul is describing is God is not just raw power, but he's love. Nor is God just love and no power. That type of God can't help you. A God that is nothing but pure sentimentality towards you. Oh, it's a bummer. Your life is horrible. I wish I could help. I can give you a hug. And you're like, hug's nice, but I need to get out of this bind. I need to not be broken. I need to not be in this place. God is not just love minus power, nor is God just power minus love. God is both love and power working for your good. And Paul says that is grace saves you god's gift power and love at work in your life rescuing redeeming restoring your life and paul is saying and praying for these people is like this is what god has already been doing at work in your life and this is what i continue to pray that god continues to do in your life so second thing is really who is paul praying for now again i already touched on this a little bit but there's two things that we'll say uh one he's praying for believers I'll come back to that in a moment. Secondly, he's praying for believers who live in a culture of really corrupted power and disfigured love. So he's praying for not just Christians, but Christians who live in a particular culture. So in other words, I want to give a little bit of a context to this. And I already, to some degree, alluded to this. But Paul is writing to a group of believers that live in this city called Ephesus. Now, if you know anything about sort of the uh, historical background of the ancient world, you know that Ephesus was a, a massive city. It wasn't just like a little, you know, outcropping in some area um, with maybe a little like 
wall around it. This was a massive, massive city. It was a massive economic center. It was a massive economic center that was uh, due to uh, a massive temple that was actually there. It was a temple that was devoted to a goddess by the name of Artemis. In fact, um, it was actually deemed as one of the seven ancient wonders, or one of the seven greatest wonders of the ancient world. Um, the actual temple to Artemis in the city of Ephesus. Now, this temple actually generated all sorts of revenue for the people there in Ephesus. And so, if you think of it this way, that these people were very familiar with pagan deities. So every single person to whom Paul is writing to, uh, power was not something that was unfamiliar to them. Uh, everybody in the ancient world recognized something about power. Now, you could have actually lived in one of those little villages in a Roman province, and you would have been familiar with power. Maybe not because of a deity, but because of Rome. Every single human being on the planet, or at least within Rome's domain, probably on the planet, but especially in Rome's domain, were familiar with power. That's how Rome exercised its peace. Rome's peace came because they flexed their power. So anytime, let's say, for example, in a Roman area, if you rose up and says, we don't want Roman people around here. We don't like what they do. We don't like what they offer. We want them out. Rome would say, really? Okay, we'll see who wins. And then Rome will obviously come in, and they have this thing that they use to kill people. They call it crucifixion. Maybe some of you have heard of it. And what they would typically do is that if you are an enemy of Rome, they would crucify you. This is Rome's way of saying, you don't cross our path. If you cross our path, this is what we do to you. We cross you out. We just eliminate you. We get rid of you. Well, why? Well, because we want peace. Rome's peace is a peace that comes through force and fear. And what Paul is basically saying is that God has power. And God uses his power as a means for good. And so these people recognize power, but what would have been foreign to them was that God, to whom Paul's writing, is not just raw power, but he's power that's good. He's full of love. Like I said, if you lived in the first century and you had some sort of deity that you prayed to or God that you prayed to, you prayed to them not because they were loving. You prayed to them because they can help you, meaning they were powerful. So you had all sorts of gods that you turned to. So if, you know, you're, say your wife, you really needed some kids and your wife was not able to have babies, so you would pray to whatever god was available at that time, offer whatever sacrifices you could so that your wife could get fertile and have a baby. Uh, the same time, if you had crops that needed to grow because you need the food to survive off, you pray to whatever gods that are basically at work in that moment bringing rain. And so the idea is that you pray to whatever gods there are to bring power that you need for whatever it is that you need in that moment. But what Paul is saying is that you know, the, the God that is at work for you, in you, through you, be, is because this God loves you. You don't have to convince him. You don't have to twist his arm. You don't have to offer sacrifices somehow to get him to listen to you. He already has heard you in your groanings like he did with the, like with the Israelites there in Egypt. He's a God that loves. He's a God that hears. He's a God that has compassion. And what Paul is saying is that I want you to know this God. So he's praying for them. So the second thing within this is, like I mentioned, kind of started as the first, but I'm going back to it, is that he's praying for believers. And I'd already touched on the fact that the believers that he's praying for are those that are former enemies of his, Gentiles. 
but he's praying that God would really pour out his presence upon him. Now, this is kind of a baffling passage because on the one hand, I'll read it to you again. Paul makes a statement that is unique. Here's what he says. Um, he says, and that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, what has kind of caused scholars to be a little bit you know, baffled by this passage is because Paul is basically writing to Christians. By definition, a Christian is somebody that has been filled by God's presence. So in other words, the Holy Spirit's already living within them. They're already belonging to God. They've already known the love of God to some degree. But Paul is praying for them that you would know the love of Christ. And not only that, it passes understanding. So you can understand why, like I said, it's kind of like Iguazu Falls. There's like all these little capillaries, all these little sections that you can just spend hours on trying to unpack and understand. So I'm not going to be able to do it complete justice uh, or even small amount of justice, but I, I want to at least try to understand why does Paul pray this. And some have actually suggested the reason what Paul is, and is writing it this way is because He's recognizing that it's possible to know who God is, to know what God has done for you, to be aware of that, to affirm it, but to not really have entered into it in in such a way where your life is radically changed by it. So in other words, let me put it this way. One is more cognitive, where you can affirm certain truths. The other is experiential whereby you actually have moved into it. It is your experience. It's what you can speak from, from experience. Uh, one of the great scholars and church pastors of the past here in America, actually his name was Jonathan Edwards. I'll read a quote to you from him in just a moment, but he makes his analogy where it's like honey. Like you can actually taste honey and you can be someone that kind of cognitively knows that honey is really sweet. So you can talk about honey, and you can talk about how it's really sweet, and maybe even smell it and kind of get some sort of idea. You might even have eyewitness accounts from all your friends are like, honey, it's really sweet. It's what I use in my tea. But unless you've ever, never really tasted it, you really don't know to the extent of how sweet honey is. And his whole point is that what Paul is praying for is that these people would not just simply know cognitively the fact that honey is sweet, that God is love, that God is powerful, but that they would enter into it, that it would become a part of their reality. That God is powerful and his power is for good and full of love for us in our lives. So if that's the case, I want to finish with this question of like, then, then how do you receive this? If it's possible that you could be here today with a cognitive understanding of who God is, you may affirm all the historical creeds of the church, you may affirm all the right orthodox concepts about the gospel, know that Jesus died, know that Jesus rose again, know that Jesus is coming back again, you may affirm all these things, but the reality is, are you living from a life of real experience? I realize, in a lot of ways, the church, historically, at least in the past several hundred years, has been a little bit fearful, I would say, of the concept of experience. And I think part of it is because we're afraid, like, well, what if that experience leads people to go crazy? And sometimes, in some cases, that has happened. And that's not necessarily, I would say, God's spirit that leads to sheer craziness, but perhaps emotionalism. But the point of the matter is, we should not allow fear of experience be something that inhibits us or keeps us outside of the realm of what Paul's praying for us. 
that we would truly enter in, that we would truly know the depth of the love of Christ, that we would truly let God's power be at work in our inner person, our inner man shaping us, changing us. Again, the power that's at work in us is not merely a power in and of itself so that we can feel powerful, but that the power that's at work in us shapes us, changes us, motivated by love, so that then, actually, we'll look at this in the weeks to come, Paul is going to begin to unpack what that looks like in the life of a believer. It looks like loving your neighbor. It looks like doing good to your enemies. It looks like being reconciled to people that you have formerly considered your enemies. It looks like husbands loving your wives. It looks like children honoring your parents. It looks like if you own a business, you treating your employees with dignity, value, and respect. See, oftentimes we think of, I need more power of God in my life because more power helps me to overcome and conquer personal sin. And yes, it does. It's not less than that, but it's far more than that. Because God's at work in you, through you, so that you would be a blessing. That's what the gospel does. It changes you. That that power working in love works to bring grace, blessing to other people. Not redemptively. We don't save people. It's God who saves us. It's God who saves people. But God uses saved people to work good works that reflect his good work. Does that make sense? You guys understand that? That's what God is at work doing. And that's what Paul is praying, that these believers would discover this power and this love that's at work and was at work through Christ's resurrection and is at work currently right now in such a profound way that they would then begin to live in a way that just reflects the greatness of God everywhere they go. So how do we receive this? Well, the two biblical answers that are right here in the text, Paul tells us. First of all, verse 16, he says, through the Spirit, that's how the power of God comes within us. So again, I'll read the the whole context, verse 16. He says this, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power, so the power of God through the Holy Spirit. The second way is through faith. Look at verse 17, it says this, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may be rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints the height, the width, the breadth, and the depth of the love of God. So the point of the matter is, those are the theologically correct answers, because they're right straight from the Bible. But again, let me suggest that oftentimes, we can read passages like this, and we can walk away and be like, okay, well, what's the answer? How do you get this? Oh, by the Holy Spirit, and by faith. See, here's the thing. A lot of times, I, I think we are prone to just say things, and they just become cliche. They don't really have any meaning. So in other words, if I were to like stop the sermon right now and be like, all right, let's pray. You guys have all the answers. Let's go out and do it. Some of you are like, okay, like by faith, I'm going to do this. And we're like, I don't know what that means. By the Holy Spirit, I'm not sure exactly what that looks like. So I want to try to put some meat to that so that we can at least begin to chew on that, think about that, as to what that looks like in our lives. Before I do that and finish, I want to read a couple examples of people's lives. Uh, These are basically their testimonies of what God had done in their lives. So in other words, each of these people were Christians prior to this particular experience, but at around this time of this experience, that God had done something to them. And many scholars would look at what happened in their lives was they, they sensed the power of God and they sensed the love of God in a way like they'd never had before. They'd heard about it. They'd known about it theologically. They can 
cognitively be aware and affirm these things. But at these moments in their lives, the power of God, the love of God swept over them in such a degree that their lives were changed. The first guy was a guy by the name of John Wesley. Whoa, that was loud, sorry. Some of you guys may be aware of him. He was a preacher, pastor uh, that went around many, many around the area of Georgia and England, so on and so forth, preaching the gospel. And this is what he said. And he was with a group of people, and they were actually reading the preface of Luther's uh, commentary to, I think it was either Galatians or Romans. It was just the preface, regardless. And when he was reading it, when they were reading out loud, this is what he said. At about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt like I did trust in Christ alone for salvation and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. So he writes about this as if to say, this moment, there was this overwhelming sense of assurance that I belonged to God, God belonged to me, I didn't doubt it. Changed me. Uh, the next guy was a guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards, which I already mentioned. So he writes this, and he says, in, ni- er, in 1737, um, Edwards wrote out in the woods, this is kind of my little commentary on this. Uh, he talks about how in this time uh, he had this encounter with God, and here's what he writes. He says, I had a view that was for me extraordinary in the glory of the Son of God and his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love. And he goes on to express how this moment, this time of just seeing God transformed him, changed him. Final guy is a guy by the name of Blaise Pascal, because some of us might look at these two guys and be like, well, maybe they're just kind of a little bit on the emotional side and prone towards excesses and prone towards emotionalism. But Blaise Pascal, if you're familiar with him, he was actually a mathematician, scientist, philosopher. Most mathematician slash scientist slash philosophers are more cognitive and less like emotional, right? You know any mathematicians that are just, like ultra emotional? I'm serious, like, do you? I don't. They're, they're, all of them I know are like really smart and, and really smart. Um, <laughs> so Blaise Pascal says this. He says, this day of grace, 1654, at about half past uh, 10 at night to about half past midnight, fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and the scholars, security, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, greatness of the human soul, joy, 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 tears of joy, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, may I never be separated from him. And it was in this moment, actually, he, he wrote that down, put it inside of his jacket, and someone discovered it, in, sewn inside of his jacket when he died. Like, this, this moment shaped Blaise Pascal for the rest of his life. He was a Christian prior to this, just like Jonathan Edwards was, just like John Wesley was. They were already Christians. They already knew cognitively what God uh, had already done for them. They had already believed that. They were already saved, if you want to look at it this way. But this, this moment, this time, brought about some form of a new redefini- redefinition of their life as to who they were. They, as some would suggest, went from just knowing God cognitively to knowing him experientially. I would suggest that most of us in this room would affirm the love of God. Most of us would say, well, of course God's love. Yes, God loves me. We could even like, you know, recite that song. Jesus loves me, yes, I know. The Bible says it tells me so. Yeah, 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 I, I know that. But if, if I were to like ask for a raise of hands, which I won't, to ask, like, how many of you right now, right now are absolutely so convinced of this that it is actually shaped, reshaped 
how you live your life. You are a new person. You are a new creation. You have a confidence. You have a boldness. You have a joy. You show up at church, gathering of the saints, and you are eager to begin to sing, eager to raise your hands, eager to just cast your cares upon God because you know that you know that you know that he loves you. If I were to ask for a show of hands, how many of you live in that experience? I'd be willing to bet that most of us would not raise our hands. Most of us, I think, would say, I think God loves me, but a lot of times I'm just not really sure. That's part of our reality. When my wife and I were kind of going through this whole, like, you know, our lives are thrown in turmoil. Um, for me, like, what, one of the, the climactic moments, I think, where uh, I guess you could say my breaking point, where I just, like, hit rock bottom was, um, you know, I think I've shared, you know, not only was it my voice, so I wasn't able to, like, preach or teach or, you know, even feel like I could come to church and hang out with you guys because, like, I can't, I can't talk to anybody, so it's kind of hard to, like, you know, you know, get involved in any type of conversation because inevitably I'll meet someone who's like, well, what happened? I'm like, can't really tell you what happened uh, other than this nice little like cliche statement I've written on my little, little writing pad. So it, I just felt alienated. But then my wife and I actually had to leave our house. Um, we, we had to move out. So we had we, not only, we, ironically, we celebrated 20 years living here in, in San Luis. And, and so in the 20th year, we were just like, we got we to gotta leave our city. We've never had to leave our city. We love our city. I love this church. I can't go to church. I can't even be in the city right now. I feel so alienated. I feel so like separated. And then to kind of make matters worse, like I, I was driving into town and uh, it was on a Sunday and my car gets a flat in Shell Beach. And I'm like, I, I literally feel like everywhere I look like God's saying, stay away. I don't want you here. Don't go to slow. Don't go to the church. So that night, I, I, you know, I, I'm just like, okay, no, my mind just like playing tricks on me. I got to just go for a walk. I just got to go think. I got to go meditate upon God's love and think through this and pray. So I went for a walk and so I'm walking and I've had these pair of shoes for ages, right? Um, and I get this gnarly blister on the back of my foot and I can't even walk. Like I'm literally bleeding to death. Maybe not that much, but I'm bleeding and I'm like, I can't even walk. I can't even hang out with God. I went home and I think I was just laying on the couch with my wife and She's like, are you okay? And I, I think I might have even had my head on her chest. And she's like rubbing my head and like, I'm like a little puppy dog. I'm like, I'm, and I'm like, I feel like God is saying, get away from me. I don't want you. Stay away. Stay away from the church. Stay away from slow. Stay away from me. Stay away from everything that you want to do. Stay away. And in my mind, I'm like, I know that's just, I think I even told her, I'm like, I know that's just garbage. I think my wording was a little bit more stronger than that. I'm like, I know that's not right. I know this isn't true. I know God loves me. But I don't feel like that right now. I feel like I'm alienated. But So what I'm saying is that we've all been through those moments, those seasons, those periods, those episodes of our lives. And what Paul, I think, is saying to this group of believers living in a very paganized culture, that knows nothing but abusive power struggles and totally distorted forms of love. 
He says, I want you to know the fusion of this power and of this love that is at work for your good, a.k.a. grace that rescues you, that saves you, that you would enter into that. So how do we do that? I'm done. I'm going to have the team come on up and we'll finish. I think the way to do that is, like I said, by faith. What does that look like? If I can just simply put it this way. I think what faith is, and there's lots of ways you can define faith. I'm going to define it for you this way. It's looking at Christ until your heart comes alive. In other words, gaze at him. I want to suggest that I think our culture is far too prone to glimpsing at Jesus, catching little snapshots. And this is in no way, shape, or form helped by the Christian book industry that's like, here's like the 30-second devotional you can buy for $4.99. Like, like, really? Like, is that what we need? Like a 30-second devotional? Have we become so weird that we just simply want to get by and scrape by as, with as little as possible of God and somehow think we're going to be the sages and somehow we're going to make it through and sustain life's greatest tragedies? We can't. We have to gaze at him until our hearts are set on fire and we know that we know that his love and his power have merged together through Jesus to wash your sin away, to cleanse your life, to welcome you to the table, and continues to be at work in you, through you, so that you can be a blessing and bring about grace and kindness to others in this world that just simply do not deserve grace and kindness, but you become that vehicle of that blessing. We can't do this on our own. This is why we always say salvation is by grace. In other words, it's God that initiates that step. It's God that moves towards us. We move towards him because he's already took that first step in moving, initiating towards us. That's it. You've got to gaze at him. I'm going to invite you to gaze, to look. And, and that's, uh, look, Again, this is, this is not like a simple answer. Because some of you can walk out, you're like writing your journal, like, gaze at Jesus. Okay, like, get that tattooed on your back. Like, gaze at Jesus. Maybe even get it in Hebrew on your arm. Like, what am I? I'm like, cool Christian. I got a Hebrew. Gaze at Jesus. You know, it's like, that's cool. Um, the point of the matter is, like, this is not easy. Every single thing in our life is really wired to just simply feed us, like, this constant drip of, information that's in soundbite format. Every morning I wake up, maybe you're like me as well, where you wake up and you're like, I really want to read my Bible. And what happens, what really happens, your actual experience every morning is like, you spend you know, 20 minutes looking at stupid things on Facebook, the news feed, you're like, oh my gosh, I just spent 20 minutes reading about people's dogs and what they ate last night and all these crazy things that are absolutely worthless to me. Or reading news bites, stuff that just, you know, we, are, we are fed this. And what happens is we don't really have any time to just gaze at Jesus. So consequently, we're not rooted, we're not grounded, 
We're not trees that are being able to feed other people. We're not people that are able to provide stability for those who are broken. We're not able to be the church that God wants us to be that is a blessing, shines as a light, that's a salt of preservation to the world around us like Jesus calls us and wants us to be. This is not to say, feel shamed, feel really ashamed. This is to say, look at Jesus, the love that he has for you, what he's accomplished for you. I'm going to invite you to that. Why don't we all stand? I want to pray for all of us. And what I want to do is because my guess is that all of us here, most of us, not all of us, most of us here, I would say are probably Christians. Every week we get a lot of people here that aren't Christians. We're super happy you guys are here. But I, I think it's a prayer I can pray for all of you, even if you're not a Christian. I'm going to pray that God would make himself known to you. If you're a Christian here, I, I want to pray that, what Paul prayed, that we would know the height, the depth, the width, the breadth of the love of Christ in such a way that it just changed us. How about we do this? Since we're all a family together, why don't you guys reach across an aisle, put your arm around somebody, put your arm on their shoulder, something that's, you know, um, kind and nice and non-intrusive and uh, be polite, be kind. It's a way of saying there is a way to touch someone that's healing, restorative, and good. Rather than hands that oftentimes are used in a way of defilement and brokenness and hurt. We're family. Our call, our goal is to heal, bring healing to each other so that we can then be healing to this world around us. Let's start here. I want to pray. Pray over us. Let's sing. If you're here and there's other things that are just going on in your life, I want to invite you. We've got a team of people that would really want to pray for you. We really believe that God wants to do work in our lives. So there's those of you that just need prayer. Don't miss out on opportunity. So I'm going to pray. We'll sing. Partake of communion. If you'd like to partake of communion together as your little groups, that'd be awesome. You guys, maybe as a group they prayed, like, let's all do communion together. We're family. Even though you don't even know each other, use this as an opportunity. Get to know someone. You're family. God, thank you for grace. Thank you for Jesus. Wash us. Cleanse us. Let the love of God and the power of God that works for our good, for our favor, grace, come alive in our lives. In such a way, God, that this world around us, this society, this culture around us that is not unlike Ephesus, um, abusive power struggles, all sorts of ways in which love has been misrepresented, that they would see community of people who love one another regardless of age differentiation regardless of social distinctions regardless of how much money some make and some others who don't have any money regardless of how good looking some are and how not good looking others are that they would see a community of people saying we love each other we serve each other because God loved us and served us in Christ his power was used motivated by love. Help us, God, we pray these things right now. Amen.